This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. As I was so kindly introduced, my name is Patty Backus, and I'm born and raised in Vancouver. Went to school in Vancouver, started out out by UBC at U Hill, and went to Southlands in the Dunbar area. Went briefly for a couple of years to a private school, Crofton House, my parents' decision. Uh, begged my way out of there at the, by the end of grade eight, and went to Point Grey Secondary, where there were a lot more boys than there were at Crofton House, which was <laughs> my primary interest in those years. And I'm a proud graduate of Point Grey, and I went on from there and went to UVic, and I studied political science and did a Bachelor of Arts in political science. Came back to Vancouver, worked for a couple of years for the federal government, and then I took the Langara Journalism Program and uh, got a certificate of journalism from Langara. And I worked for a little while for a community newspaper in Richmond, writing about public schools and, and what was happening then. And it was kind of the mid-80s, really interesting time for public education. It was that first big wave of immigrant families from Hong Kong at the time. So schools were, the ESL discussion in schools was just kind of starting in a big way. We had the big influx in Richmond and the school district was looking at how do we best uh, welcome and support these students to successfully uh, integrate into the school. So it was a, and also a time when the idea of including students with special needs was uh, very much uh, in, in its early days and lots of enthusiasm for doing so but a lot of uh, difficulty figuring out how to do it and how to make that work. So it was a very formative time, and I uh, was having fun covering it as a reporter, going to school board meetings, talking with parents, uh, looking at the whole politics of education, which in BC are uh, never dull. And um, and after I did that for a little while, it was a very small paper, and it was challenging. My had one other reporter and I were writing all of the copy. It was the Richmond Times, which was a short-lived paper that was a sister paper for any of you from Delta who know the Delta Optimist. I was recruited from there to work for the Richmond School Board. I had been doing a lot of work covering the board, talking with the staff there, particularly the superintendent of the day. And I told him I was thinking of leaving the paper and looking for some other kind of uh, role. And he said, you know, why don't you come and work for us? Why don't you come and do some, we need some communications work. We need someone to rewrite all our brochures. And we need to do a better job of telling the taxpayers who fund us what good work we're doing and why they need to be uh, supporting uh, investment in public education. In those days, school boards still had some taxing authority uh, and could increase the mill rate and do some taxation and uh, needed to kind of make that case all the time. Now, and so that was an interesting time, and I spent a couple of years working for the Richmond School Board as their communications manager, and a lot of that work was reaching out to community. It was a really rapidly changing community, and trying to engage the public in understanding what was happening in schools, why it was important, why it was innovative, why uh, public education was still uh, the best choice for students as uh, we're starting to see a little bit of growth of the private school sector. It had always been there, but it had been a fairly small piece. But some of the, uh, and particularly some of the newcomer families were looking for, for independent and sometimes religious options for their, for their kids. So that was an interesting time. 
I left there uh, in the late 80s and went on to another public affairs role. I worked at the BC Automobile Association, and then I went on a maternity leave, had my own kids, and uh, but got involved back into the school system as a parent uh, in the early, well, sort of around the turn of the millennium, around the year 2000, my kids were, little ones were starting school, and I was uh, going to meetings and trying to be that supportive parent and understand what was happening. And it was an interesting time, and I had uh, one of my children, my son, who's now 21, was really struggling with some special needs, like a lot of families go through, and I was looking at how to get him support in school. I loved that we could walk to our neighborhood school. I was a little concerned about the condition of the school. It looked pretty run down and started having questions about what would happen if there was an earthquake. But, but I really liked what was happening in the school. The staff were just fantastic and, and working really hard to meet his needs. More and more people said to me, why don't you put him in a private school? Why don't you put him in a special school? And I said, because I love public schools and every kid should be able to go to school. I want him to be friends with the neighbors. I believe the strength of our, our country is really based in a, and our strength of democracy is, is based in an accessible universal public education system that meets the needs of every single student regardless of their own background. And I really wanted to make, I thought if I can't make public school work for my kid, uh, you know, then, then, you know, we're, we're failing that. So I plugged away. Um, and it was an interesting time because we had a, a young education minister at the time who was engaged in some pretty, pretty confrontational negotiations with the teachers union. This is back in early 2000 and, uh, ended up basically tearing up the teacher's contract that gave them the right to bargain class size and composition and working conditions. Her, the education manager's name was Christy Clark, you probably heard of her, and, and morale was terrible in my kids' school. There was this horrible battle going on. Here I'm trying to work with teachers, making sure my kids get what they need and other kids are getting what they need, and you've got these teachers who are uh, really distracted by this horrendous battle of uh, losing provisions. And for those of you who, who you know, remember back what happened in the 90s, they'd given up a lot in terms of uh, salary increases in previous negotiations to get those working conditions. So they'd given up a lot, got the ability uh, to have manageable class sizes. There were, in the Vancouver version of the teacher's contract, there were very specific limits on the numbers of students with special needs and, and ratios to ensure there were librarians and counselors and learning assistants. All of those had been hard-fought uh, conditions in the contract that enabled teachers to do their best work in classes by making sure they weren't given unmanageable workloads and also had the right kinds of specialist teachers. When that contract got torn up, that was all gone, and, and the, lid, the lid came off. And I, I actually saw, as a parent, I saw the difference that it made. And it uh, created a lot of challenge. And of course, that really formed for me as a parent and my own children, that, that cast a shadow over their entire school years. Uh, they're now 21 and 22 years old. Every year they were in school, except for 2005, uh, the school board had to make cuts. And because they had taken apart that contract, school boards could make cuts that Previously, some of them they wouldn't have been able to do. So what we saw happen in Vancouver and right across BC is positions like specialist uh, teacher librarians who are really, I would say these days, some of the most critical people because they're all about how to synthesize information, find information, verify the accuracy, critically think and assess. You know, we're in the era of fake news and the internet, who could be more critical than a well-trained librarian to uh, support students and learning how to learn? 
we saw reductions in school counselors at a time when we're seeing mental health issues become a, a real challenge for our young people. We saw reductions in special education staffing, school administration. We saw class sizes get larger, and we saw the limits taken off the number of students with designated special needs in a class, where previously the classes would, in Vancouver would have had to get smaller and smaller with every special needs child. And I, uh, as a parent, I got involved with other parents in a group called Save Our Schools back in around 2002. It was across the city. We came together, pan-partisan, just group of people who believed that we had our public schools were critical and that they were, uh, and, and we know we actually have one of the best public education systems in the world. We still know that. We have people come here from all over the world to pay to attend our public schools. We stack up against any other jurisdiction, I think, uh, very well. However, we thought this was really under under attack and, and being eroded. And at the same time, we are watching steady growth in independent schools and some policy changes that I, I can elaborate on later if you want at the government level that we're really supporting the, the growth of, of the independent and private schools. So it was an interesting time. We came together as a big group. We did a letter writing campaign to the education minister. We got 14,000 signed form letters in two weeks which any of you have done campaigns, I bet a lot of you have, that's huge. <laughs> and we asked to have a meeting with uh, the education minister to say, here's 14,000 Vancouver parents have signed these letters, they're concerned about what's happening, and she refused to meet. Um, so we carried on. Um, we, I also got involved as a parent, I got involved with another with a group that was looking at uh, the seismic upgrading of schools. At that point, my kids were in one of those lovely red brick, brick schools that we see all over Vancouver that are generally held together by gravity and lead paint and some asbestos wrap pipes and, and not a whole lot more. And, and I'm, I'm, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I've seen those things, what happens when they take apart the walls. There's not much holding them together. Brittle old dried masonry, very poorly applied, um, and those come down very quickly. The ones we have demolished for seismic, one bang, and they're down. Um, I started, I've joined a group of parents and students. It was actually started by students at, at uh, Van Tech to lobby in, this is back in the early 2000s, uh, for seismic upgrading of schools. Government wasn't doing it. Um, and, and that that became another sort of activism thing that I didn't expect. I wasn't really an activist. I hadn't been that, that engaged politically. I saw myself more as a probably a journalist kind of watching on things. After, you know, seeing what a struggle it was, the struggle it was to get the support every year from my own son, I also was involved in a group called Vancouver Parents for Successful Inclusion, which was a networking and advocacy group for parents of kids with special needs. Just that it was just like such an uphill battle all the time. Uh, to ensure my kids were getting what they wanted, but also wanting to sh know that when they got something, it wasn't because another student was going out without. Because I was told that once when I was uh, trying to get more support for my son and he needed a support worker in aid, and I said, well, we can pull him a few more hours, but you know, we have to take it from somebody else. And that's a terrible thing to tell a parent who's, who's advocating for their own child, but it was actually the truth. So I wanted to see, you know, why why were we so... Um, why was this austerity such a thing in our school when we really had a wealthy province? Uh, we know that investing in kids pays off. 
I know I had a great uh, public education experience. We know our schools are doing really well. They're not failing schools. They're actually constantly uh, showing their outcomes are fantastic, but yet every year we're asking school boards to take away more because the funding they get from the government that now rely mostly on that uh, is never enough to even cover inflation. So eventually someone said to me, you know, why don't you run for the school board? You go on about this stuff all the time. <laughs> and I said, no, I can't do that. I've got kids at home and different things I have to do. And uh, and I kept thinking of who could we get to run. There was some changes in the municipal politics. I don't know if those of you involved in Vancouver municipal politics. There had been sort of a COPE split. COPE and Vision had grown out, and people were worried. This is back in sort of the 2008 election. Who's going to run and who's going to do the school board? And I'd actually been a, myself, I'd been quite... Uh, supportive of the uh, COPE school board that had been there 2002-2005. They'd advocated, I thought, very well for kids, listened to parents. I was frustrated with the board that was in after 2005. I didn't feel they were putting up any kind of a fight or making even a case for better funding uh, for, the, for the schools. So by 2008, I somehow agreed I would uh, seek a nomination uh, from the... I, I ran with Vision Vancouver. Um, First time I'd ever ran a school board slate or a park board slate or a mayoral. That was Gregor Robertson's first time running as mayor. And was elected in 2008 to the Vancouver School Board. Um, I was a brand new rookie trustee. And uh, just because of how things happen, I also found myself elected chair. So I had a lot to learn very quickly. Uh, chairing the Vancouver School Board, which is probably the, it's the second largest school board in BC. Surrey's actually larger, the district, more kids. But I would say there's no question Vancouver is the most complex and gets the most uh, heat politically and media-wise and has a lot of groups that uh, are very actively involved and want to participate. So it's a very exciting, very challenging, really interesting. And, you know, I, wonderful, wonderful things happen in our public schools. It got me uh, out to all kinds of schools to see all kinds of just amazing, innovative programs and I'd always been a, a big supporter of teachers, but until I worked for the, was a trustee and actually went out and saw the conditions they're often working in and saw how many of the supports that have been sort of probably invisible to the public, but there for teachers over the years, different consultants at the office, different other supports, had been pulled away through subsequent years of budget cuts. Every year when school boards have to cut staffing to balance their budgets, they try to do, you know, they would say, don't do the front lines. Well, what you don't realize is even if you keep the frontline teacher there, if you take all the people behind them, supporting them away, and we have a teacher, it makes it a lot harder. And they're really on their own with some really challenging situations and, and really complex situations. We know our student populations are much different than, I know when I grew up, I went to school here, every kid in my class spoke English, most had mom at home during the day, most of us went home for lunch, well supported, uh, we, nobody worried about housing that I recall where I lived anyway. Uh, you know, no one had grown up in a war zone or seen trauma. Um, we were all pretty, pretty much the same, you know, I guess, would you say? So, and, and I think, you know, if you go into classrooms now, they're really diverse, really interesting. I mean, I think there's an incredible microcosms of sort of the, the society that I think most of us dream for here, where we all work together in a respectful way, collaborative way. We solve problems. We appreciate each other's differences. Uh, but they were different then, and it's much more complex for teachers now. And we have students with special needs in the class that wouldn't have been in a mainstream class before. We have many students who don't speak the language, some who have just arrived in Canada, some who have experienced uh, incredible trauma, 
We have a whole issue with the achievement gap between Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal students and the whole legacy of colonialism and residential schools and what that has uh, created in terms of challenges for Aboriginal students and their barriers to success. So many, many things that we have to factor in for, for teachers that are now can have all of that in the one classroom. And uh, it's, it's an interesting time. So it's a, an incredible time in education still. I think it's exciting. I think it's as we come closer to an election, I would say it's the first time in several provincial election cycles that I think I'm seeing education becoming more of an election issue. It often gets kind of ignored during, during election time, although people care about it. It's not generally the ballot box issue. People are worried about economy, environment, transportation, housing, all of those big issues. But it is a critical one. And I, I you know, I, was at an event a little while ago. It was a retirement event, and I was talking with a retired superintendent uh, who had been in the BC school system many years, highly respected, lovely man. And he, this was during the American election campaign, so this is sort of back in the spring. And he said to me, you know, I watched what they did to the American education system in the 70s. And I watched, you know, what happened when Reagan was in, and I watched how they deprofessionalized teaching and how they what they did with funding and the inequities where they have low, some, uh, you know, just really, really poor schools and the hollowing out of the system. And he said, oh, you got to think it's got something to do with the rise of Trump. <laughs> and, you know, I'll leave the whole Trump question for another day. But, you know, I, we talked about how critical a really good education system is, a public education system to an effective democracy to have, have a population of citizens who are educated, critical thinkers, who are able to elect governments, hold them to account, uh, to see through the kind of spin and uh, fear, and, and now, of course, the whole fake news. Uh, and, you know, we, we do risk this, what I see, this slow erosion of, of our support for education at our peril. And I, I think it's an alarming time. What we've seen happen in BC now, in BC, independent schools, they like to call themselves, I call them private schools. They're not independent if they're taking public money, they're dependent. Um, they do get public funding. Um, if you're a religious school, and the majority of, of the independent schools are, I think I have some numbers on them, it's 27% of our independent schools are Catholic. Uh, I think another 31% are other kind of Christian types, and then there's a whole other range of faith-based schools, and then there's the university prep and other types of schools, the Waldorfs, the different types. They can get uh, about 50% of this, they get 50% of the same grant per student that, say, the Vancouver School Board or public school would, um, if they don't spend more per student than the public schools do. So if you're a Catholic school or a I don't know, any school, I'm not, not trying to pick on the Catholics, but if you're any kind of a school that dispenses as much or less as a public school would, even though you can choose your students, you can screen out who you want, you only have to take who you think would be a good fit for your school, you get that money from the taxpayer. Um, you don't necessarily have to follow the Human Rights Code. You can exclude some people, you can discriminate against some of your staff if they're their lifestyle doesn't fit with your religious beliefs, even though you're taking taxpayers' dollars. That is growing. I mean, that, that you know, there, there always have been independent schools until I think it was 1977. They didn't get any um, any tax dollars. They probably got some tax breaks, but uh, not tax dollars. Now they do get that funding. 
And not only do they get that funding, um, some of them, if they're the more expensive elite schools, uh, the university prep schools, that would be the Yorkos, St. George's, Crofton, those, they get 35%. But what they also have access to are a whole number of tax uh, advantages. So they don't have to pay any municipal tax. If you're a school, if you're an independent school, you don't pay your property tax. You have, the rest of us, you pay your property tax. They don't pay. So you go by, some of these schools have big grounds, lovely fields, tennis courts, much nicer than most of the public schools. They're not paying any city taxes for that. Um, what we've seen recently in some, uh, one of my colleagues at the Observer wrote a piece on the hidden tax advantages to the independent, is some of the schools, a uh, big Catholic school here in Vancouver, they'll give paperwork out so you can declare your tuition fees, so you pay some tuition, as a donation to the church. It's tax deductible. So, so you can get a break on your tuition. We recently discovered some of the schools are claiming the federal child care tax credit for supervision at recess and lunch. So you can take a portion of your tuition and say, well, we paid that for kids up to 16. So you have 16-year-olds at, say, St. George's, apparently, in the tax, you know, that's really meant for daycare costs, right? So they're, they're actually getting, a, I think it's about $3,000 rebate, so the school is billing part of their tuition, calling it child care. So they're getting a break there. And then they explain that, and I think they even give this information out to parents, is how you can set up, if your income's high enough, you can set up family trusts, and you can move your money through the family trust, so you can actually pay the cost of your tuition through the tax benefits you get through that. So you can pretty well, if you've got enough money, you can actually send your kid to some of these schools for no cost, fully really covered by the taxpayer, all of us. But those schools, of course, can exclude students with special needs, students with behavior issues, students who maybe don't have parents to get them up and get them to school in the morning. So a very, you know, to me, a, a, it can be quite discriminatory and certainly not that inclusive kind of population that to me is the strength of public schools. I mean, to me, one of the things I loved as a parent for my own kids is I wanted them to grow up with and know uh, other kids from all parts, all walks of life and all backgrounds. They watch the news now and they connect through people. They say, oh, that's happening in Iran, that kid in my class, you know, he was, they have, they, they, they see the world through the eyes of a kid who's grown up in a, in a global classroom with children from all kinds of the world. They know about other religions, they know about other kinds of, uh, all kinds of uh, people as people. As people, we need to work together as, as neighbors, as colleagues. Uh, we need to solve problems together, and we need to do that respectfully. They've had that. Uh, I, I don't know, growing up in a school where you're all of the same faith and similar background, I'm not sure. I think I think you maybe lose something there, but perhaps there are some benefits as well. We've seen a big growth in the number of independent schools in 1970. There were about 176 independent schools. There's now about 363 about $341 million a year now is spent, uh, is allocated to independent schools. That's a huge increase. So I was trying to go back and find some numbers. I think in, back in 1978, it was about $8 million. By the late, say, 97, 98, it was about, it got all the way up to $129 million, And so we're now more than double that. So, and, and the growth is there every year. We're seeing um, growth in the percentage of, of enrollment in independent schools where public schools have been slightly declining. So about, about I believe it's about 13 to 15% of students now go to independent schools. But what we are seeing in, in total numbers is the total number of 
school-age kids in BC has been declining, although that's starting to shift now, but the numbers going to independent schools have been steadily increasing. And um, the independent schools have a very active lobbying program. Red, they have an independent association, FISA, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Federation of Independent Schools Association, you Google it, lots of information. And they're registered as lobbyists with the provincial government, and a number of the lobby goals that they have to state as lobbyists, they have achieved. So they now can get, for example, this was quietly changed a few years ago, special education funding if they have a student who, the way the, the, the general public education system works, if you have students who meet certain criteria for special needs, so for example, if they're considered to be on the autism spectrum, they get us, this district is given a supplemental grant of about, I think it's about $19,000 for that category. If they're severely, severely, severely handicapped, that they need attendance constantly, they get a higher amount. If they have some other uh, developmental issues, but not quite as severe, it's a lower amount. Those, those are funding grants that go to the district, not necessarily straight to that child, but it's a way to reflect the composition of the district. Uh, that didn't used to be available to private schools, but now they can get 100% of those grants, so they can get just as much. So we have a number of independent schools that, for example, um, specialize in supporting students with special needs. Um, who can get the 35% grant. Of course, they can charge any tuition they want. Some of them charge you know, $25,000. Plus, they can access the special education grants. Plus, they're going to be eligible for some tax uh, benefits. And sometimes they get some other. I know government this year came out with another million dollars for a group of schools. So we're seeing this, this challenge of we have really... Uh, I would say underfunded public schools. We're about $1,000 per student below the national average in BC. Since the Clark government has been in and even the Campbell government, we've watched the other provinces, if you look at their funding levels, have been inching up and BC's just to stay. So this gap of what it costs to provide the same service from year to year gets bigger each year. When my kids started out, to take the funding level, and we've done this calculation at the school board, to provide the same level of service now, even adjusted for enrollment decline, inflation, would take almost about $100 million more in Vancouver a year. And we now, the out of a total budget of about $500 million. So it's a big, big gap. It's a lot of, hundreds of teaching positions have been sort of carved out. Maintenance, heat, we've, schools are freezing on cold days. We've cut days of the school year. I mean, I could go on lists and lists of the things that have been cut. Principals, custodians, supervision aides, you name it, they have been cut. And for what? For what? I, you know, my argument is, uh, yes, you don't, if you have fewer kids, you don't need as many staff, but that's, this, that's over and above what you would naturally reduce for any reduction. So it's been a real struggle for our schools to stay. And, you know, you could argue that this is a government that does support privatization of public services. You could argue it, not to say some people would disagree. And you look at where parts of the world where they have moved toward a more privatized system from a public system, there's you know some classic strategies where you talk about you undermine public confidence, you defund, uh, you, you create that, uh, undermine public confidence. And I've seen it so many times with uh, parents who are frustrated with the schools, they can't get the services they need, uh, they're not get getting responses because there's no staff there to call them back. They're having a challenge, and they say, ah, you know, I'm done. We're, we're going to private school. And, and that's a real, it's unfortunate to me because as each student leaves the system, that's a chunk of money that the school district loses, and it has to start cutting back. 
one of the changes to the funding formulas that were brought in by the when it was Gordon Campbell government and Christy Clark was the minister was the shift to this per student funding model which doesn't sound very interesting it's not actually but it's had a really big impact on districts like Vancouver that have a slow enrollment decline anyone who's taken a first year economics course knows about economies of scale so if you have a district like Vancouver with about 50,000 students, 110 schools, and each year you lose 100 students through enrollment decline, just lower birth rates, people can't afford to live here. So 100 students, well that 100 times about $8,000, you've got a big chunk of money you're missing out of your system there. But you've got maybe one per school or five per school um, and over eight grades. Like it doesn't really change. Whereas if you have a slow slight enrollment increase and you had another 100 or 200 kids coming in, you can pretty much absorb them into your schools without really increasing your cost significantly. So that per student funding form has, has hit hard in most districts in BC other than Surrey, which has growing uh, enrollment in a, in a way that each year we have to take away, but the actual, uh, you know, the actual services don't change. So it's an interesting time. Because I'm not really sure where your interest lies and how much detail you want on this, I thought I'd kind of stop there myself.